The scripture reading this um, afternoon is Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31 to 26, verse 16. Matthew 25, starting at verse 31, the word of God as follows. And this is the, uh, Jesus speaking here to his disciples. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. But me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, 
went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. So far, the word of God. And this afternoon, we deal with Lord's Day 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and we'll turn to Lord's Day 31 on page 546 of the Book of Praise. Lord's Day 31. And there the church has confessed the word of God as follows. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven open and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is open when it, was, when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people call themselves Christian but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment so far our confession of Holy Scripture. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, boys and girls who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon with Lord's Day 1, we deal with some pretty serious matters involving our eternal destiny. So I'll begin with the theme and points of the sermon right away. The theme comes from Lord's Day, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we pay attention to three things in connection with those keys. First of all, the gate of the kingdom. Secondly, the key of preaching. And thirdly, the key of discipline. First of all, then, the gate of the kingdom. Congregation, someday we're all going to stand before God's throne. Everybody. Everybody in the world. Everybody that has ever been. Believers, agnostics, atheists, people of all religions. And we'll be there before God's holy throne. And the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be seated on that throne. As we read Matthew 25, he spoke about that himself. And like a shepherd, he will separate the sheep from the goats. As he himself said there, he will say to the sheep, come you who are blessed by my Father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And he will say to the goats, depart from me, you cursed, 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Where will you be? Where will you stand? Can you even know that beforehand? Now? You know that there are people who, who say you can never know which side you're going to end up on, the left or the right side. You just have to wait and see. Hope for the best. Mennonites, Roman Catholics, the Church of Rome keeps people in uncertainty in order that they keep coming to the sacraments, for the sacraments. Also some uh, reformed groups teach that most people can never know for sure, just only if they have some kind of special heavenly experience or so. Well, just imagine that you had to live your whole life with that kind of uncertainty, where you will end up in eternity. That would be miserable if toward the end of your life, that would still be a big question mark hanging above your head, wouldn't it? Could be heaven, could be hell, I don't know. Have to see where I end up. You don't live with that kind of uncertainty, do you? If you have to wait and see if you've passed a grade at school or whether you passed your driver's examination, you get pretty nervous, uptight, you pace back and forth and so on. Check things over all kinds of times just waiting for the results, or if you have to wait for uh, the result of a medical test to see whether you have a serious illness like cancer or so, you're pretty uptight waiting for the results. You can lay awake about that for a while. Well, if you don't know your eternal destiny, you're not gonna sleep too well, are you? and work and live from day to day as if there's not a cloud in the horizon? Can you? If you say you can live happily with that uncertainty, the devil sure has you fooled. Because you know something? The Lord God wants us to know our eternal destiny, and he wants us to know it now. He wants his people to live in the certainty and the joy of knowing their eternal destination. Of living in the assurance that they're on the way to inheriting the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. And by the same token, he wants people who truly don't believe to know they're not going to inherit that kingdom And that they need to repent and embrace Christ in faith and to make sure that believers and unbelievers know what destiny awaits them, he has given his church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now you could imagine that kingdom of heaven like one of these ancient palaces or castles, you know, that... You see in a Disney movie something beautiful, wonderful, lavish. 
After all, Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a treasure and to a great feast, wedding feast and so on. The kingdom of God is a place of joy and riches and happiness as found nowhere else. So like a huge palace with a, a wide driveway leading up to it, and at the beginning of that driveway to a gate which is open with keys, and those are keys which open the gate so that when somebody comes closer to it, they know that they can step through that gate and walk up that drive and into that palace with all its riches and pleasures, but those keys can also close that gate so that when someone approaches it along the road, they notice that the, that the gate is shut and they can't go further and eventually into that palace. Well, the Lord God has given those keys to that gate on that road leading up to the palace, to the church. He has. That's what we confess, Lord, say 31. And notice, they're keys, not a sword. Keys. God didn't give the church a sword to force people through the gate or away from it. He gave his church keys. And that's what the Lord Jesus shows in those words to Peter. When Peter drew his sword, you know, Jesus said, enough. Those who live by the sword will perish by it. But earlier on, when Peter had confessed him to be the Christ, Jesus said to Peter and the other apostles, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's that gate leading up to that palace that he's talking about. Notice he spoke there, the Lord Jesus spoke there about binding and loosing. Now, binding is restricting, like when Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast which a king gave for his son. He noticed a man at the feast without a wedding garment on, and the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. Binding is keeping out, like a key would keep out. And loosing is setting free, releasing with a key. Setting free from the handcuffs of the devil and the curse on sin so that a person can look forward to entering that palace, that kingdom. Well, so the Lord gave the keys of the kingdom to the church in order to bind or to loose like that, to let people know whether they can enter the kingdom or not so they know that here and now already they're assured of that here and now. And that's the task of the church. In the preaching and in the administration of church discipline, you don't need to wait for the day when the Son of Man comes in his glory to know whether you're going to end up on Jesus' left hand or right hand. You don't have to wait, wait till then. Leave it up in the air till then. As member of the Church of Christ, you can know that beforehand already. And how? Through the keys which Christ gave his apostles and his church based on their testimony, which that church has to administer, the keys of preaching of the gospel and church discipline. And that's so you know your eternal destiny. Let's think about that first key, key of preaching. So the, the one key the Lord gave his church is the preaching of the gospel. Preaching is called a lot of things in the Bible. 
proclamation, administration of salvation, heralding the good news and so on. But preaching is also called the key of the kingdom. And the Lord God told Ezekiel to preach and to say to the righteous man that it would go well with him and to the, the wicked man that he would surely die. That was his task. The preaching, in other words, clearly sets out who may go into heaven and who may not enter the kingdom of heaven. Or to put it even more directly, the preaching tells you whether if Jesus comes back tonight, you'll be able to go in or you're going to have to stay outside and Jesus says to you, I'm sorry, I don't know you. How does the preaching tell you that? Well, it doesn't give specific names. I go through a congregation and give names of people. You're going in and you're not. It doesn't. For no minister or office bearer can look into people's hearts. Whether they truly believe or not. How can you distinguish, you know, as for instance, uh, between hypocritical type of faith which shows well and true faith which may, might be struggling with things? How, how do you, can you tell the difference? Think of Judas. He played the part of the disciple of the Lord very well. But he didn't have true faith. He was a hypocrite. Well, if names were named, the hearers wouldn't need to think and they wouldn't need to examine themselves. And that's what it's about, examining yourself. Because that's what the Lord wants to do via the preaching. Bring all the hearers to examine themselves, their own hearts and motives. The gate of the kingdom is opened and shut in the preaching when the hearers are presented with those two alternatives. People will surely enter the kingdom by repentance and faith in Christ, and they will surely not enter the kingdom if they remain unrepentant and unbelieving. The curse remains on them. And those two alternatives, they need to come out in the preaching all the time. Might not be nice, but you have to hear those two. And then the hearers are confronted with the question of where they stand as they hear with those who may enter or with those who are going to be shut out. We confess those two in question and answer 84 of Lord's Day 31, believers who by true faith accept the promise of the gospel and unbelievers and hypocrites who do not repent. Now, when we say gospel, we mean Jesus Christ. Christ himself is the good news. In him, people have forgiveness of sins, complete reconciliation with God, in him, people's lives are renewed and they receive the strength to fight against the sins they still have in their life. So those benefits are available to all through faith in Christ, forgiveness and renewal. And that's proclaimed. In the gospel, God says, I promise forgiveness of all your sins and strength to fight against those sins. I, I promise all those things in Jesus Christ. And at the same time salvation is proclaimed in Christ, then you also hear the demands of God's law proclaimed. Salvation is proclaimed to us, but at the same time also the demands of God's law. The Lord, as it were, hits me with his law so that I keep fleeing to his son for forgiveness of all my sins. 
And so that I continually keep seeking and accepting those promises of the gospel in true repentance. That's something we have to be brought back to every time again through the gospel, the preaching. Repentance. Those promises of forgiveness and renewal in Christ are ours through repentance and embracing Christ in faith. And then through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit teaches me that I need to accept that and I can accept that every time again. And when I do that, accept that every time again, I sit under the preaching, yes, that's true. That's what I want. That's for me. Then I become more and more sure that the kingdom of heaven is open to me. In fact, it tells me that I'm in the kingdom already and will not be cast out. I'm on that road to that palace through the gate already. My feelings might still cause me to doubt that sometimes, of course. Doubt where I stand. I've committed too many sins in the past, maybe, and my intellect sometimes tells me I have to show a lot more improvement than I have now shown in my life. But every Sunday again, the preaching of the church says to me that when I accept those promises of the gospel by true faith again, I'm fully reconciled to God and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. My feelings and intellect might, might talk differently, but whenever I sit and hear the gospel proclaimed here, it's confirmed to me that by faith I'm reconciled to God and citizen of his kingdom. And that's what happens here. And then there's the other side. Unbelievers. And we're not talking about people who don't come into any church. We're talking about people in church who refuse to let go of unbiblical ideas or activities in their life. They receive a different message in the preaching. And hypocrites who look like they're believers on the outside, everything nice and dandy, but on the inside are not, also receive that same message. Those people don't have their hearts set on the promises of the gospel, on the forgiveness and renewal promised in Christ. They don't seek the complete forgiveness of all their sins in Christ with a broken and contrite heart. They don't want to become like little children to receive the kingdom. Or they want that forgiveness, but they're not interested in the renewal of their lives. They don't want to give up certain sins in their life. I don't want to let that go. They don't like the law of God when its demands are proclaimed. They, they want to hang on to certain sins and they look for excuses to remain in those sins, to hang on to them. My situation is completely unique so that I feel that God is okay with what I'm doing. And I don't care what anybody says. That other person in my life is the cause of my sins. And they reason then that God is okay with how they're thinking or living. And then they're fooling themselves. And they're unrepentant. And maybe nobody notices their unrepentance at first, just like with Judas. The, the, the other disciples didn't notice that Judas had given up on the Lord Jesus Christ either. 
But the preaching seeks them out and finds them when it's proclaimed in the preaching that God's wrath and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they don't repent of their sin. And maybe they still personally feel close to the Lord, but in the preaching of the gospel, he says to them, via that preaching, he says to them, as long as you hold on to that sin and don't humble yourself and seek your whole life from me, I am sorry I don't know you. See, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that's how the key of preaching opens and closes when it presents those two alternatives. And it's emphasized in Lord's Day 31 that according to this testimony of the gospel, as it's proclaimed here, God will judge in this life and in the life to come when you stand before the Lord Jesus. Are you somebody who truly, with all your heart, desires those promises of Jesus Christ, of the gospel? Have you really been humbled through the preaching of the law of God so that you realize how desperately you need Jesus Christ and want to, and want to live for him? And it doesn't just happen once, but is, does that happen to you over and over again, every time again? Do you want that forgiveness? Then it's for you. Then it is for you. Then you have the complete forgiveness of all your sins. Then you're citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The key is turned and your, your way is, is open to go forward to that palace. And you can go home again to day two with the certainty that if the Lord called you before his throne tonight, he'd say, Come on in, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Or are you somebody who cherishes certain sins in your life, who doesn't want to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ? Then the preaching of the gospel is telling you that God's wrath and eternal condemnation rests on you. And that's quite something, to go home with that hanging above your head. How could you sleep tonight? There's something you can still do, though. Notice it says 31, Lord's Day 31, as long as they do not repent. This is a call to repentance. The preaching is a call to constant repentance. And the kingdom will be wide open for you if you repent, if you humble yourself and confess your sins and unworthiness and seek the salvation promised in Christ. The preaching calls you to that. You realize too then, brothers and sisters, it's important to continually be under the preaching of the gospel if you want to be assured of your eternal destiny. Because it's through the gospel that, that assurance comes into your heart and grows in you. And to listen with open ears and open heart then too. And if there's doubt, then you pray again with the last part of Psalm 139, for instance. Lord, search me. Know my heart. See if I from your ways depart. And let me by your word be taught. And it's important then too how the word of God is preached, right? Because imagine that I as minister would tell you and again and again, it's all good, 
it's all good with all of you. You're all going to heaven, into the kingdom. And then you go home thinking, well, it's all fine with us. And then you can die and end up under God's eternal wrath. Or imagine I keep telling you that you're not good enough. You're not good enough. Too sinful, actually, to be citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And then you leave this life and you can't go into that kingdom because you were always given the feeling it wasn't for you. So it's also important how the gospel is preached. The two have to be preached. Both. And with that in mind, then you... Then the question is, do you pray for your minister that he can preach the gospel like that with those two alternatives? That he's able to handle the key of the kingdom rightly in his preaching every Sunday again? Your new minister here too. So important for your souls and the souls of your children and the whole congregation. Important for your assurance. And elders... Support your minister in his task of preaching the gospel. Listen carefully and, and guide him in his preaching so that he proclaims that gospel honestly, both sides. Handles that key. So that believers are encouraged and strengthened and unbelievers and hypocrites are called to repentance. And remember, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, to pray for the training of those who bring the gospel too because the preaching is a key the Lord gave his church to open and close, to bind and to loose. And by means of that key, according to that testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. By means of that key, the exercise of that key, you come to know your eternal future. We come to the second key, key of discipline. Whereas the key of preaching will call the hearers to self-examination, to look at themselves honestly. The second key involves the naming of names. People who show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life, even though they call themselves Christians. There's a process of repeated admonitions in regards to those people, repeated over time. First private, of course, um, admonitions, and then with others present, and then by the elders of the church. And that, that process also brings to light then whether that person has fallen into a sin once and is repentant about it, or whether they continue to justify what they did and maybe even just want to continue in it. Because it's about repentance. It's not about a certain sin as such, but it's about whether they repent or not. That process will show whether that person is repentant about doctrine or life. If such a person continues to hold on to a sin or false doctrine unrepentantly, the admonitions will eventually lead to them being withheld from taking part in the Lord's Supper and in time being excluded from the congregation. And that's all quite serious. 
But the process, that process is intended to call to repentance and to continue to call to repentance, to call back from the direction their life is taking. They're going in that direction. Sadly, it happens that many who are subject to admonitions like that have already taken leave of the church in their hearts and they're not touched by the process. They're just angered by it, sadly. And they want to slam the door in the faces of the people who come to admonish them. And then they withdraw from the church before it comes to excommunication. Sometimes they simply join a church which doesn't make a, a big deal out of living together before marriage or where they allow you to believe that people have evolved on earth before Adam and Eve or, or something else. Of course, the admonitions directed at members whose confession and life are unbiblical should again be with loving intent to bring back to God and his church. So those admonitions need to be brought in the context of the communion of saints in which we love and care about each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. See, the, the Lord gave this key of discipline to his church for a number of reasons. And you, some of them are listed in the church order, Article 66 of the church order. First, reason would be because God's honor is at stake and that's a big one that God's honor is at stake if someone speaks or acts unbiblically and continues in that even if they're admonished they're dishonoring God and the church has to do with worshiping and and honoring God, and if it allows someone to go against God's will and word, then God's name is dishonored. And it's exactly the church's task to glorify God's name. In the second place, the key of church discipline is given to the church because God has shown in the Bible that when sin has found a place in the congregation and is accepted there, tolerated, his wrath eventually is going to be kindled against the whole congregation. Everybody will be affected by it. When Israel attacked Ai in the Old Testament, the nation was defeated at first because of the sin of Achan, who took treasure from Jericho. And the people, the, the nation of Israel did nothing to prevent that kind of theft. And then God deals with the congregation to a certain extent as a unit, as a whole. A sin allowed in the church here will affect the whole congregation. And that brings to the third reason for that key of church discipline, and that is to prevent other members of the church to be taken along on the same path this unrepentant person is taking towards their own destruction. For if a sin is publicly tolerated in the congregation, then the other members can come to the conclusion, it's okay for me to do the same thing to commit that same sin or similar sin. And then so, as the Apostle Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And the third reason is to shake the non-repentant person awake, to bring them to their senses. You know, take them by the shoulders and shake them. You realize where you're going? Where you're headed? so that they repent before it's too late, to call a brother or sister in Christ back to Christ and his church so that they don't bring condemnation on themselves 
and end up in eternal regret. Eternal regret. Discipline, you see then, is at the root an act of love for that person. So church discipline, a lot of people figure it sounds negative, which is why a lot of churches today don't practice it anymore. But when you think about it, you see that it's actually a very positive thing, loving even. The congregation makes sure that God's name is glorified. And where God is truly feared and loved, there will also be love and concern for one another as his family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And love that functions like that will make the church attractive to others too. That love will then function in the congregation as a whole and bring the members to be open and encouraging and helping to one another in general, living a holy life which glorifies God and makes the church a light in this world. So it's positive. Church discipline, this key, when it's exercised. For instance, when it comes to what we do with our time or how we manage our money or church attendance or what we do for entertainment or on our vocation, we can be open to each other about how we live close to the Lord and everything and can honor him in all kinds of ways and means. We all positively want not only to profess to be Christians, but want to show ourselves to be Christian in doctrine and life, don't we? We all want to live to God's glory, don't we? We all, together, want this church to be a light on a hill, don't we? Because let's not forget, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, every sin begins small. Every addiction begins with using for the first time. People who no longer attend church started skipping a service once in a while because they wanted to do something else they thought was more important. It starts small. And do we, do we care about each other's spiritual well-being, about our marriage partners or our child's or our neighbor's eternal salvation enough that we will address them about things we have, our, our concerns? And are we open enough so that people can address us about the same type of things. That's the beginning of it all. In the words of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it says in the letter to the Hebrews, let's stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the day of that Hebrews is talking about has a capital letter in the translation. You notice it's the day when the Son of Man comes in his glory to separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. People for his kingdom on his right, people for eternal punishment on his left. And which side will he tell you, your family, your neighbor, to stand? Do you know? Amen.